0: He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. I love that. To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin's of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is living and active. Thank You that Your Word is not just words on the page, but that Your Holy Spirit has, has spoken these words so that they may come alive and, 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 and minister to each and every one of us. Thank you that your word is powerful. It's the only thing that cuts to our hearts. It's the only thing that pierces the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And so Father, we pray that your word would have its way with us. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We ask that you would come, that you would... Enable us to hear from you that you would enable us to do what we can't do on our own, and that's respond to you. Lord, give us the grace. Empower us to respond to you in faith. And God, we pray that you would change us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This past week, 20 children and 8 adults were We're killed in an evil and horrible act in in Newton, Connecticut. Things like this can be very confusing at times. They can shake many people. Terrible actions by bad people doing horrific things like this. They remind us, don't they, that the world is broken. It reminds us that we need hope outside of a fallen humanity. We can't hope in humanity. We can't hope in getting better in our own. We need hope outside of ourselves. We need hope outside of fallen humanity. It's also a reminder of the brevity and the frailty of life. And none of us really know when our death may come. As Christians, we, we grieve for those who are killed. We grieve for the families of those who have been slain. We grieve for the fact that people can still be so violent and sinful and evil. In times like this, there's a few ways that we can and we should respond. And we should respond first by praying. Um, we can pray. Pray for the victims of the families. Pray for those who don't know Christ, who know Him. Pray that they would trust in Jesus even when there's no answers and nothing seems to make sense. Pray that families would be able to turn to Jesus and find comfort and peace in Him. Especially in this time, amidst the consequences of this violent act. Pray for the students and teachers who survived. That they wouldn't be traumatized. They'd find hope and comfort in Jesus. Pray for the community. Pray for this event that it would cause many to turn to God. But we're called to do more than pray too, aren't we? We're we're called to to talk about the broken condition of humanity. We're not just called to pray. We're to to capture times like this to say, you know what? Yes, humanity is broken. We have problems. We have, in fact, a large problem. We have sin that needs to be dealt with. We have sin that needs to be put away Humanity is hopeless in our own. We need Jesus. Let this be a time that you use to be able to minister hope, minister the gospel. Speak up about how sinful people do sinful things and all of us are capable of the worst crimes. They remind us times like this that our, our world is broken and humanity is indeed depraved and we're in need of being rescued. We really are in need of being rescued and we need to be saved from sin. We need God to make all things new. And that's, that's the cry of our hearts when things like this happen. Is Lord, come, make all things new. We need God to redeem our hearts and minds because only He can do that. Only God can redeem humanity's fallen hearts and minds. Only God can change us. We need God to make all things new. We need the world to repent, to find hope in Jesus. We need to live lives ourselves that really point to the hope that we have in Christ, both in actions and in words. We need to be ministers of the good news. Let times like this, and times of tragedy like this generally, let them be an opportunity for you to be a minister of the good news, to be an agent of grace and how you care for people, how you comfort people, how you listen to people. We need to show His love and care for the broken world we live in and and we need to join Jesus in making disciples of all nations. So I was thinking about the tragedy, and then I was thinking about the passage that we have this morning. I, I think there is a relevant connection for us. You see, mankind, we're fallen. We, we, can't, we can't be clean on our own. We, we need to be made clean. Times like this remind us we need a deliverer, we need salvation. We can't do it on our own. We need jesus to make mankind clean we need to have new hearts and new minds and the only way for true change to occur in this in this world really is for people to repent and be changed by god and this passage helps us see that one day not just those victims but one day each and every one of us in this room will die one day each and every one of us will face our own mortality one day each one of us will perish we don't know how and times like this are meant to be wake-up calls to remind us that one day Jesus is going to return. One day Jesus will return and He'll make all things new and all those who place their faith in Him will be saved. In times like this, they're meant to remind us to eagerly expect, to eagerly look for, to eagerly hope for His return. I love that that was the focus of the songs this morning. Matt wasn't aware of where we were going ahead of time. I emailed him after I got the song list. I said, Matt, I think you're just hearing from the Lord. This is God wanting to encourage us that one day he'll return. See, he's already come to redeem sinful humanity. And one day he'll come to bring us back to be home with him. The main idea of the passage in hebrews is it's a timely reminder. It is something we need to be reminded of that the whole world needs to hear. Let these words really settle on you. You see, the, the point of this passage is that Christ died to put away sins. Isn't that good news? Christ died to put away sins so that when we die, and all of us will die, by the way, so that when we die, we might not be judged but saved. Christ died to put away sins so that... When we die, we might not be judged, but saved. We need to have our sins dealt with. We need to be made clean. We need to have our sins put away. And here's the good news of this passage this morning, especially in dark times like this week. Christ died to put away sins. Christ died to do exactly what we needed most see christ came he didn't come just to make us feel better about ourselves he didn't come to feel an empty hole in our hearts christ came to do what we could never do he came to do what was most important he came to do what humanity needed the most he came to die and he came to die so that he might put away our sins verse 23 if you look down in your bibles it says thus it was necessary for the heavenly copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In the Old Testament, the earthly copies of these heavenly things, they had to be purified with blood. And if you remember, uh, verse 22 in Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us that everything was purified with blood. There was nothing that was not purified with blood and this earthly Tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary, everything was purified with blood. And if you remember, it wasn't just the vessels that were used in worship. It was the book of the law. And then remember, it was the people themselves. Everything. Everything. The tent, the people, the vessels, the book. Everything had to be purified with blood. And so what that's meant to tell us, what that's meant to remind us of is that Humanity is fallen. Humanity needs to have sins put away because we're dirty. And why in the world do you think the vessels were purified with blood in the book, in the tent? I mean, a tent is not inherently impure, right? A vessel is not inherently impure. But I think we miss something important. If we miss the fact, the reason why all those heavenly, all those copies of the heavenly things need to be purified, it was because we've touched them. You see, humanity is what taints the world. It's fallen, sinful humanity that cries out to be made clean. And everything that we touch, all the vessels, the tents, everything, needed to be purified because humanity made them dirty. Dirty. The book of Leviticus tells us that the whole reason that the priests performed the rituals that they did and made atonement in the most, for the most holy place, it was because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites. And, and then what appears shocking about the second part of this verse is you notice, okay, not just the heavenly things need to be copied, but look at the second part of verse 23 for a moment. It says, but the heavenly things themselves, it was necessary for them to be purified with better sacrifices than these. So. What in the world is that talking about? Is it saying that heaven is dirty? Does heaven need to be purified with Jesus' blood? What in the world? Isn't that where God is? What's going on here? What are you saying? Has heaven somehow been defiled? Well, I think verse 24 is a wonderful explanation and help for us. It reveals why the heavenly throne room needs to be purified in a sense. It says that Jesus has appeared in the presence of God there's some so there's very in, important words there. On our behalf. The reason why Jesus needed to bring a better sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice into heaven, it was so that humans can be there. Remember, we're the ones who taint everything. And in order for humans to be able to be in God's presence, there had to be made a way that we could be purified, that our conscience, that the spiritual side of things that could be, could be purified. Our sin to be dealt with once and for all. And from the context in chapter 9, it seems that the author, he's really using a metaphor here. He's referring to heavenly sanctuary symbolically as, as representing our spiritual state, our conscience that's purified. And now, here's the good news, Christian. Christ died to put away sins. He didn't just die to make us partially not sinful. He didn't just die to make us feel better. He didn't just die to to kind of cover over things. He died to completely put away our sins. He's provided a superior sacrifice that doesn't just make us okay. It makes us clean and able to come into His presence. It's important because if you're like me, most of the time, I'm aware of some area I've failed. I'm aware of some weakness. I'm aware of some deficiency. And a lot of us, at some point in time, we will feel dirty. Do you, you don't, don't raise your hand, but do you ever feel that way? you ever feel dirty? you ever feel defiled? So bad at times that we feel like we're going to defile heaven if we were there. I feel that way sometimes. I think most of us do. I like how John Piper puts it when he refers to this verse, and he says, now listen to this. He is speaking to those of you all of us in our clear moments, he says, who feel so dirty and so deeply bad that you would only pollute heaven if you got there. Oh, how many people are kept away from Christ because of this. I pray that you would see what an invitation this is. This is God's way of saying, and I think this is where we really need to pay attention. He says, come, you dirty ones. Come, you defiled, you deeply evil ones. Come, you have soiled yourself. Come, you who have been stained by others. Come to my heaven, for my son is there. He has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place, not to keep you out, but to make you clean, so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. Come. You see, Jesus sacrificed himself. What these verses are telling us is that Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all time to come into God's presence on our behalf so that he can welcome us, so that we can come into his presence purified by his sacrifice. The people under the Levitical system, if you remember from earlier in chapter 9, the people under the Levitical system, they could never get into the Holy Place They could never go into that tent. They could never go into the Holy of Holies. They needed, they longed for. It was meant to create an anticipation, a hoping for a time when they could experience God's presence. And verse 25 tells us though that Jesus has gone once and for all, not like priests who enter every year with the blood of animals. They don't come with their own sacrifice. They come with the blood of animals. Jesus doesn't, doesn't continue to offer himself it says he offered himself once why is that important it means that our continual sinning no longer needs a sacrifice he's already offered himself once and for all time when he died on the cross he said it is finished all the payment for all of our sins had been made you see if the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient to deal with all the sins of man finally. Then as verse 26 tells us, Jesus would have had to die continually since the very foundation of the earth. And why is that? Well, it's because at the very beginning, from the very outset, Adam sinned. And so Jesus would have had to die every time man sinned. Jesus would have had to die if his sacrifice was not sufficient. But thanks be to God, that's not the case. From Adam on... And since the death of Christ on, all of humanity looks to one central place in history. It's the once and for all sacrifice of Christ to deliver us, to put away sin. God always planned to delay His wrath. He always planned to stay His wrath until the time when Jesus would come. I I love how Scripture says it, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the fullness of time! At the right time, when humanity was ready, when they could see it, when humanity had been anticipating, longing for, hoping for, needing, wanting some way to get into God's presence, and Jesus came at just the right time. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem born under the law, not to, not to keep us under the law, not to, not to remind us that we need to keep the law. No, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus has now come at the end of the ages, our passage tells us. What this means really is that all of human history, all of humanity is, is, is looking forward and looking backwards to the time when Christ died. It's, that's why we mark... Appropriately so, all of history based on the death and resurrection of our Lord. We live now at the time of the end of the ages. The final stretch, the home stretch of time. We now await Christ's return. See, Jesus in His coming, what it's saying is is He has ushered in the end of the ages. He's ushered in the fulfillment of all of God's plans and His self-offering It's completely sufficient for history past, for the present, and for the future. It doesn't just say that he covered over sins. I love that we have this verse. It's meant to give us hope. He doesn't just cover sins. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins, although that's amazing. He doesn't just bear the punishment for our sins. It says he died to to put away. To put away sins. And if you think about, what does it mean to put away? You, you hear the analogies of, you know, that, that man committed a heinous crime. He needs to be put away. To be taken away from society. To be put away. To locked up so they can no longer influence, no longer harm. When you put away a criminal, you lock him up. When you put away judgment, you no longer judge. When it says Jesus put away sin, what it means is that he effectively exiled it. He, he took it and he put it in a place where it was locked up. It could no longer harm us. It could no longer rule and reign over us. Yes, still sin calls to us from behind bars. And it entreats us to obey it. But we don't have to any longer. Sin has been put away. Dealt with finally. Our hopes that sinful humanity now can be made clean. Our hope, our hope in dark times is that sinful humanity can be made clean because he paid the price for sins once and for all to put away sin. Look down at verse 27 for a moment. There's a stark reality there. It says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Well, there's a second point that I believe our text is focusing on and that we should focus on as well. And the second point is that all mankind will die once. All mankind, if you are, if you are a human, and, and everybody in this room is a human, by the way, <laughs> even those people who you look at beside you and think, you're not right, man, you're not human. They really are. They may not be right, and that's good news that Jesus came to put away sin so that we can all be made right. Um, and eventually one day we'll all be made new. But all mankind, all mankind will die. And, and we're not going to come back. There's no, there's no reincarnation. You know... I think that that reincarnation is this horrible lie of the devil to try to tempt people to think that they don't have to live here and now. They don't have to be worried about what they do here and now because eventually they can take care of things and eventually they'll come back and eventually they can make everything right. Well, that's not the case. That's not true because all mankind will die and you're going to die only once. Notice there's some important words and I want to draw your attention to them. There's, There's some important words in this text. It says, appointed. And he says, once. And he says, to die. And he says, judgment. Appointed once to die after that judgment. What he's saying is that humans die only once. And it's impossible to die physically more than once. And in the same way, it's impossible on our own to avoid God's judgment. On our own, there's no possibility for avoiding God's judgment because what happens? We're appointed to die. After we're appointed to die, we're going to die. We're going to die once. We're never coming back again. And after we die, after death, for those who are not in Christ, comes judgment. These are not optional words. We don't pick and choose which ones we want to apply to us. Our death has been appointed. Think about that word for a moment. To be appointed is not to choose something. If I've been appointed to something, I didn't choose that something. When it says all of mankind is appointed, it means that we don't choose our own time of death. Even if you take your own life, even that would be appointed by God. This means that our death is not random as well. It's it's been appointed for us to die once. In the very word of appointment, it speaks of the act of a divine judge, decreeing that human beings would indeed die. So you have to ask for a moment, when was it appointed for man to die? Where is that in Scripture? Where do you find that? When is it appointed for man to die once? Well, it was appointed for man to die way back in Genesis. You remember in Genesis 2, before woman was ever created, God gave Adam a command. And he says, "Um, you can eat of every tree. And look in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, the death of man, it doesn't just come about by natural processes. We're not fatalistic. God appoints the day of our birth and the day of our death. And in fact, in Psalm 139.16 it says it a different way. It says, in your book, talking about God, in your book, oh God, were we're written, were all written, the days that were ordained for me. In your book, were all written. Not not some of them were written, not just one day here, God stepped away, your life goes on, and then at the end he comes in and, and finishes it up. No, it says, in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were not one of them. All mankind will die once, and it's been appointed for us. And as Christians, we don't subscribe to a meaningless fatalism, because it's clear that God's ordained and written down all of our days, even before we were born. And this is meant to give us assurance that nothing in our lives happens outside of His control, even when we don't understand it. We can trust that He's all wise, He's all knowing, He's all loving, He's all powerful. No matter what life ends up looking like, we can trust His sovereign plans and We can trust his appointment. We can trust all the days he's ordained for us. All of us will die because of sin. And this will only happen once. There's no second chance after death. You don't get to have a do-over. You don't get to heaven and say, God, can I have a do-over, please? It doesn't work that way. Once we die, this life is all over. There's no coming back. There's no returning to try again. Again. This passage is telling us something different. Not only is it appointed for us all to die. And by the way, it could be at any moment. Each and every one of us do not know the day of our death. And it could happen in a random way. It could happen when you least expect it. My, My uncle was driving down the road and he passed out randomly. Hit a guardrail, got run over by a tractor trailer. He was healthy. Boom, he was gone. All of us don't know when our death is. We only get one chance at this life. And God's appointed it. And after that comes judgment. Okay, so judgment's going to happen. The question is, though, will you face God's judgment? Or will instead you be saved? It's meant to wake us up. This, this passage is meant to wake us up from slumber. It's meant to wake us up from sleeping, to stir us to live differently, not to, to earn God's approval or to earn salvation. We can't do that. But it's meant to make us live in a manner that's wise, to count our days, to number our days aright, to think about the fact that we only have one life to live, and then it's over. If you knew you were appointed to die in a month, if you were told by your doctor that you incon that there's no reason to doubt that you have a month to live, it would likely focus your thoughts, wouldn't it? It would likely focus the way you lived. It would likely focus your mind. You'd be aware of how you spent your time. And, and Moses, in light of that, he prayed this in Psalm 90, 12. He, prays, he says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. What's our response meant to be the fact that knowing that we will all die once we're to say, God, teach us to number our days aright so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's meant to help us see the seriousness of our lives and to live accordingly. And for those who are not found in Christ, here's the bad news. If you are not found in Christ, after your death comes the judgment, and the judgment's coming for you. You will all, if you're not in Christ, experience the full the full wrath of God you're all going to experience a certain terrifying judgment of God. In Romans, it tells us that no one is righteous. Don't think you can escape. It says, no, not one. Everyone has turned aside. No one's worthy to stand before God on his own. Everyone has earned the eternal wrath of God. And in the Bible, tells us, it says, vengeance is mine. Think about that for a moment. Here we have the Almighty God, all-powerful, all-knowing God who knows everything we've ever done. And if you are not in Christ, if your sins have not been put away, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's a terrifying thought. The Almighty God who knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, every deed you've ever done, every ill-spoken word. And He says He's going to take vengeance on you and judge you. All people have sinned and, and earned the just wrath of God. We don't like to think about this, though, do we? We don't like to think about our death. We don't like to think about His unmitigated wrath for all eternity on those who are not in Him. Every one of us, though, is going to get old. Or die in an accident before then. Or have a terrible illness and die before you get old. Every one of us will die in some manner. The scary thought, though, is that death isn't the worst part. We're going to face, if you're not in Christ, all humanity will face judgment and the opportunity to choose your path will be done. There's going to be no more going back, no changing directions. If you are not found in Christ, if your sins have not been put away, you're going to stand naked and helpless before Him. And it's a sobering truth. And, and how is a sobering truth meant to function? It's meant to, it's meant to make us see what's important in life. It's meant as Christians. If you are a Christian, if, if Jesus has put away your sins because you have placed your hope and your faith and your trust in His once and for all sacrifice, this is still meant to function for you to see the world around you who is dying and doesn't know it. To see the world around you who is... Meriting God's wrath. And to preach the gospel to them. To make disciples. For Christians, it's meant to motivate us to be about the work of making disciples. And if you're not a Christian... Or if maybe you're coming this morning and you're playing church, you're pretending to be a Christian, or maybe you're going through emotions, maybe you're raised in the church and yet you have no desire for God. You have no desire for His things. There's no evidence in your life except for externalisms. Then let me warn you, you're playing church. Let this shake you up and hopefully wake you up. Let it make you turn and repent and trust in Jesus before it's too late. But thankfully... The passage doesn't leave us there. It tells us that those who eagerly await His return will be saved. And that's our third point this morning, is that those who eagerly await His return will be saved. That's good news this morning. That should, that should bring a smile to the face of everyone who is eagerly waiting His return. This is not an uncertainty. This is not something we have to hope in and wonder if it will truly come to pass Everybody who eagerly awaits his return will be saved. Yes, we have been saved from sin. Yes, we have had sin put away if you place your hope and trust in Jesus. But, here's a wonderful truth. One day, if you are eagerly hoping, eagerly waiting his return, all of your sins will be done away with. You'll no longer sin. You'll no longer be weak. Your body will be redeemed. This fallen sinful humanity will be redeemed. This broken world will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. And see, there's a a way that this passage is telling us. In verse 28, look, look in your Bibles. It says, So Christ, having been offered once, To bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Maybe you're feeling like he's never coming back. No, you can trust and hope in the scripture. He will appear a second time. And here's the even better news. If you're eagerly waiting for him, it says, not to deal with sin. Isn't that incredible? If you are a person who has placed their hope in Jesus Christ, if you are hoping eagerly for His return and saying, Jesus, I trust in You. Here's the good news. He's not coming to deal with your sin because it's already been dealt with. You don't have to feel like, oh no, when He comes back, I'm going to be ashamed and embarrassed. You have no need for shame and embarrassment. He's not coming to deal with sin, but for those... We're eagerly waiting for him. It says he's coming to save. We can escape spiritual death by trusting in the death of Christ on the cross in our place once and for all. We die and after that comes judgment. But here's the the interesting thing. It says we die after that comes judgment and there's a parallel that we're meant to see. But Christ has died to put away sin so that those who hope in him would not be judged. You see, we deserve judgment. Christ took judgment for us so that we might not experience that, but instead we might be saved. I'm going to share another quote from John Piper with you this morning. He says, For every decisive experience that you have, like dying and facing God in judgment, the Son of God has a corresponding experience. Only Christ's experiences are not merely alongside ours and like them. His have an impact on ours. His death and our death are not parallel. He utterly transforms our death. I added a word there. He utterly transforms ours. Our arrival at the judgment and His arrival at the judgment are not parallel. He rescues us. In other words, the parallel between our life and Christ's life is designed to show how utterly dependent on Him we are at every point of our lives and how great He is. He is the strong, saving one. And we are the weak, desperate ones. The question is for each and every one of us, are you, are you eagerly waiting for Him? Are you the bride? Are you eagerly waiting for the groom's return? Last week I mentioned the ancient Jewish marriage custom, marriage ceremony, and how the groom would offer the cup to the woman and he would proclaim a covenant to her. And he would pass her the cup. And she would either accept this covenant by accepting the cup and drinking from it, or she would set it down and not drink from it and not receive the covenant. But if she accepted the cup, it would signify... Her acceptance of the covenant, and then the broom, groom would offer a bride price to her father. After the covenant was made and the bride was betrothed, the groom then, he, he, here's what he would do he would go back to his father's house where there were many rooms and he would prepare a place for the bride. It's a beautiful picture of Christ and His bride and how we accept the covenant that Jesus offers to us in His blood. The covenant that He has kept in His blood. But last week I intentionally did not share what would follow typically in this contract, in this covenant, in this agreement. Because it's appropriate for our pastors today. You see, the bride, after the bridegroom went away to go and prepare a place, the bride would be expected to stay, to remain pure, to be set apart for her groom. During this period, she'd be trained, she'd be prepared to take on the role of a wife and to ensure that she'd be a fitting bride for her groom. And the groom, he would go and he'd be separated from the bride for a period in order to prepare a place for her in her father's house. And after a set period of time, the groom would return. Here's the interesting thing, though, in in this ancient Jewish custom. The bride knew that he was coming back after a period of time, but she didn't know exactly what hour, what day, what time he'd come back. She didn't know when he'd return, so she had to be expecting to be ready. She'd be expected to have her bags packed at any moment. She'd be expected to be ready to go with him as soon as he came for her. And the custom used to be that at the end of that period of separation, here's what the groom would do. He would come, typically... Somewhere around midnight, somewhere after dark, when she least expected it, maybe after she'd fallen asleep, and he'd come to take his bride to be with him in the place that he prepared for her. Even though the bride was eagerly waiting and expecting, she didn't know Exactly when it would happen. So, what would happen is, as the groom went out, he would send a couple of his friends ahead of him to cry out in the streets and say, The groom is coming! Behold, the groom is coming! Behold, the groom is coming! And then all the people in the streets would shout, Behold, the groom is coming! And then the bride would be expected to be ready to go with him. They returned to his father's house. And then, when they get back to the father's house, there would typically be a great feast that would be prepared. And many guests would be there already, invited for a time of feasting and celebrating. You see, it was with that custom in mind that Jesus, He shared with us. With an awareness of those customs, He told us the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. And He tells the story of these... Members of the wedding party that had all been invited to the feast. But five of them were foolish and they were unprepared. They were not waiting. They were not prepared. They didn't have oil for their lamps. But five of them were prepared. And so when the bridegroom came, he was, he was delayed. And they all fell asleep. They were drowsy. They fell asleep. But at midnight, the scripture says, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Behold, come out to meet him. Then the ones who were prepared rose and trimmed their lamps. And it says, And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. You see, it was too late for those who were not eagerly waiting and prepared. While they were going to buy, it says, The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, Jesus says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I love that parable takes on even greater significance thinking about the marriage ceremony. The point of the parable is that Those who are eagerly, wisely awaiting. The point of this passage, those who are wisely awaiting the return are those who are going to enter into the marriage feast. But those who are unprepared, they're not going to have a second chance. They're going to be cast out. And the Lord's going to say to them, we didn't know them. So here's here's the news for us, church. We're to watch. We're to be eagerly expecting. We're to be eagerly waiting for His return. Because we don't know the hour or the day. So what does this kind of watching look like? Does it mean we're supposed to have literal lamps and oil? No, it's not saying that at all. We're to watch. Our lives are to show that we are watching. Our lives are to be a demonstration. Our lives are to, to be lived as if we're really aware that Jesus is going to return one day and save us from judgment. We're to live as if, as if that's the most important thing. Now let me ask you this morning, is that, is that the most important thing to you? That, you know what, this world and its passing rewards will fade. All the trouble of this world will once one day go away. But we have a hope that's eternal, that's secure. We have an inheritance that's kept in heaven. It's undefiled. Is this what's most important to you or are other lesser things more important to you? We need to ask ourselves, how are we living in light of eternity? It's especially true this time of year with the hustle and the bustle of the season What we're doing, who we're going to go visit, what we're going to buy, all those things can consume us, can't they? You can be so focused and so wrapped up in all these temporal things that really pale in light of eternity. It's not what we should be living for. What we have for Christmas dinner and where we're going to have it, that could be more of our focus of the season than focusing on Jesus and the fact that the reason he came was to take our place, to rescue us, to put away sin So that we might be saved. And you need to ask yourself this morning and throughout the season, you need to ask yourself, where is my focus this season? Is it on the right person? Is it in the right place? Am I eagerly waiting for his return? Or am I letting bickering with relatives? Because we're all going to have that this season at some point in time. Everybody's got a relative you have challenges with. If you don't now, you will soon. Get married. Um... (laughs) My relatives, I get along great with my in-laws, by the way, um, in case they're listening. Um, We we need to ask ourselves, where's our focus? You see, there can become so many pressures and so many expectations. We need to have our focus reoriented. I, I, I love that God's so timely in letting us come to a passage like this. Maybe you're trying to get a lot of work done so you can take time off. Maybe college students, you're home, you have time off and you experience both the joy of being at home and the stress of being at home because you've been living on your own for a while. Now you're back under mom and dad's house, and oh, my goodness, what in the world? Am I supposed to, like, tell them when I come and go now? And I wasn't before, and how does that work? And this is really awkward and weird. And um, You know, there can be so, so many stresses and weird expectations this time of year, and parents might be stressed out about whether your kids are coming home for a visit and how long they stay, or maybe your kids aren't coming home. Most of us are going to struggle with, like I said, different, difficult relatives at times. And it's interesting how eternal perspectives, they're revealed in times like this. They're not revealed in the huge things. They're revealed in the little moments of life. Where our focus is. What we're expecting. What we're waiting for. What we're hoping. And it's revealed in all those small times. When we get irritated or agitated, when we overcook our turkey, it's showing that, you know what? This is more important to us than what's most important. Now, we can be disappointed. I'm disappointed when I overcook things, too. That's okay. But ultimately, even little things can reveal where our hope is, where our expectation is. Our passage in this parable, the, the virgins, is meant to remind us, though, of why our perspective matters. You know, judgment is coming for those who die in their sins. But Jesus is coming back to save. Oh, This is critically important. It's not just about ritual. Think about your life in the next two weeks. What's your life going to look like over the next two weeks? You know, Christmas is roughly two weeks away. What's consuming you? Eagerly awaiting what matters most is what's meant to consume. There's something much bigger than... All of the trappings of the holiday season for all of us. Christmas can be a wonderful time of the year, but it's not what we're living for the most. And we need to think about what's most important. When I was a kid, I remember I would eagerly anticipate Christmas morning. Um, one, one time I hid under the couch waiting for Santa to come. I fell asleep under the couch and I woke up with all the presents there. I was eagerly waiting. I thought about it, I dreamed about it, I was waiting for it. And this sort of eager expectation That's the kind of eager expectation we're meant to have, not for presence. See, that's a misplaced hope. But we're meant to have that eager expectation for the the one who came to put away sins and save us. Some of us can't imagine that what is up ahead can be even better than now. Some of us may not have an idea that what God has planned for us is even better than here. You see, the, the... The groom has gone and we've been separated for a period of time, but we can be sure he's returning. And why has he gone? He's gone to prepare a place for us so that when he returns and we least expect it, he's going to go and take us back to his father's house. And there's going to be a time of great rejoicing, great feasting, a time that's even better than anything we can imagine here and now. But living eagerly, awaiting his return, is to live a radical life. So to live a radical life that says that what really matters is his return. And if you're not sure this morning that you're ready, you can be ready. You can trust in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf in a way that makes you eager for his return. And this eager expectation, this kind of watching for his return, it's a, it's a sign that we have really entered into a covenant with him. That we've really received that covenant. If you were eagerly waiting... It's a sign that you've received the cup of a covenant that he's held out to us and that you're waiting for his return to him to, to give ourselves fully to him. I'll share one last quote by Piper this morning. it's a piper heavy quote this morning. It says, "The eager expectation for Christ is simply a sign that we love him and believe in him authentically. There is a phony faith. I think we all need to hear this there's a phony faith that only wants to escape from hell, but has no desire from Christ. That does not save. And it does not produce an eager expectation for Christ to come. It would rather that Christ not come for as long as possible so they can have as much of this world as possible. But the faith that really holds on to Christ as treasure and hope and joy is the faith that makes us long for Christ to come. Are you longing for Christ to come this morning? If not, let this stir a passion for you to long for Christ. And he says, this is the faith that saves. So I urge you, turn from the world and from sin into Christ. Take him not just as your fire insurance policy, but as your eagerly awaited bridegroom and friend and Lord. The final book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's, it's all about anticipating the coming of the bridegroom. And I, I love that at the very beginning of Revelation, here's how it opens up. It opens up in Revelation 1.7 and it says, Behold! Remember that illustration I shared with you earlier? Behold, the bride is coming. I love the language it uses in Revelation 1.7. Behold, He's coming! Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and the tribes of all the earth will wail on account of Him. Because after that comes the judgment even so amen and then revelation opens anticipating the bridegroom coming and then it closes and that's an appropriate place for us to close as well revelation 22:12 <laughs> same language i love how god's consistent through scripture to give us pictures like this he says behold i'm coming Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes in his blood. It says, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter into the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Are you hearing this morning? Are you saying, come? Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let that be our cry this morning. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Go ahead and ask the band to go ahead and come forward. As we're closing, let us pray. And go ahead and stand together. Father, I pray that that would be the heart of every man, woman, and child here. That we would long for your return. Pray for those who are playing church or phony, who don't know you this morning. I pray for those who don't think they need you, that you would rescue, that they would turn away from judgment and turn to you and be saved Father I pray for all of us who love you and wait for your return I pray that you would wake us up I pray we would live for what matters most we wouldn't live for ourselves of passing world's rewards we would live for you and we would say together even so come